This is the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For details about the Centre, please go to our website at www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash Chomi. To listen to other episodes from our archive, please visit the Centre's iTunes page or our media website, chomi.org. In this episode, recorded on the 17th of December 2016, Dr. James McGeechee, Associate Staff Member of the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland, University Ulster, reads his paper entitled A Network of Enterprises and a Centre of Calculation, Becoming Sir William Wilde. The chair for this paper was Dr. Fierker Byrne. Welcome everyone to this sort of final uh, seminar in the Chomi Seminar Series. And today we have the great pleasure of welcoming Dr. James McGeechee here. Uh, James is an associated staff member of the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland at the University of Ulster, and where he held a Wellcome Trust uh, Research Fellowship there. He's a graduate of Reading University, and he received his PhD from Cambridge. And he, we're very lucky to have him because he's a leading authority on Victorian elite medicine in Ireland and the patronage and scientific networks in which they worked. Uh, particularly in terms of figures such as William Wilde, which James will be discussing today, and also George Segerson. Um, and his paper today is entitled A Network of Enterprises and a Centre of Calculation, Becoming Sir William Wilde, which I suspect will have a little science technology studies in it. A bit, here and there. Um, and I'd also like to draw your attention also to uh, James's recent publication on Wilde in the Irish Journal of Medical Science, which is well worth a read. Thank you very much, Fred. Thank you. Okay, I'm actually going to start with the Irish Journal of Medical Science where, related to that. Um, the 6th of May 2015, the History of Medicine section of the Royal Academy of Medicine in Ireland held a symposium to mark the bicentenary of the birth of Sir William Wilde in March 1815. Um, invited speakers were either historians or clinicians with an interest in medical history, two of whom uh, specialise in Wilde's own two areas of medical expertise. That's Susan Mullaney in ophthalmology and Michael Walsh, who is the first Sir William Wilde Professor of um, Otolaryngology at the Royal College of Surgeons. Uh, papers from this symposium, and my brief at the symposium was to give a closing paper, a kind of overview of, of Wilde's career. They're all now published in the April 2016 Irish Journal of Medical Science. Um, the, the, the symposium and the articles are intended to reflect uh, the diversity of Wilde's interests and involvements as a clinician, a savant and a public intellectual. As listed um, on the plaque honouring him on the side of his uh, palatial former home at Number 1 Merrion Square, which is now the American College in, um, in Dublin, um, but it is Wilde's home from 1855 uh, to the time of his death in 1876. Uh, the plaque um, reads as follows. Uh, just on the corner, as you come round onto Merriam Square, where you cross on that um, Montclair, Montclair, Montclair Hotel, yeah. Um, Aural and ophthalmic surgeon, archaeologist, ethnologist, antiquarian, biographer, statistician, naturalist, topographer, historian, folklorist. So, Quite a lot of things in addition to the day job there. But, uh, um, now, what I want to do today is to look at the foundational years of Wilde's career and what they tell us about how you became uh, a top doc, a leading member of the Dublin, Dublin medical elite between the 1830s and the 1850s. 
This is a relatively neglected period of Irish history, spanning the uh, political and religious tensions of the decades immediately following the Union, the Great Famine, and the brief Irish Age of Equipoise, which followed the famine in the 1850s and early 1860s. Um, drawing on methodologies and approaches developed by historians and sociologists of medicine and science, I'm going to argue that being um, the savant and public intellectual that Wilde became during this period should not be seen as a manifestation of him as an individual Hibernian virtuoso in a cluster of other virtuosos in the Dublin of that time. Rather, it was a crucial part of how you fashioned yourself as an elite medical man, as a very, was, that was the contemporary term that was used, in these islands during the 19th and right through into the early 20th century. Um, a crucial component, in other words, of how the youngest son of Thomas Wilde, an apparently obscure Protestant country doctor in rural Roscommon, about whom little beyond anecdote is known, could become the founder of a specialist hospital in Dublin with a global reputation and be appointed oculist in ordinary to the Queen in Ireland, amongst numerous other honours. I'm suggesting then that William Wilde's sense of himself as a medical man was at the centre of his achievements as a savant. Um, Knighted for his work on the Irish census, he was also awarded the Cunningham Prize, the highest honour bestowed by the Royal Irish Academy in honour of his archaeological and antiquarian research in the field and for compiling the Academy's multi-volume catalogue of antiquities. His intellectual eminence was reflected by the King of Sweden. Uh, sorry, his intellectual and indeed his international eminence was reflected by the King of Sweden, making him a chevalier of the Order of the Northern Star. And if you look at that... Um, the, the image there where, there's a, where he's wearing a military uniform, that's actually, that is the uniform of a chevalier of the Northern Star. Uh, and um, it, um, his, uh, his international eminence and, and intellectual reputation is also demonstrated by the, his honorary membership of learned societies across Europe. The larger number of students from America and the furthest reaches of the British Empire who enlisted as students at St Mark's Hospital of the Iron Ear demonstrated his international eminence as a clinician. St Mark's was a specialist hospital he founded in Dublin. Um, it later merged into what's now the um, Victoria Iron Ear Hospital on Adelaide Road. Um, um, when he founded St Mark's, which is down in the vicinity of St Mark's Church, that former Church of Ireland church that's just off Pierce Street, um, and um, St Mark's is where, was the first hospital of its kind in these islands, not just um, in Ireland, but in these islands as a whole. Um, by using the term becoming Sir William Wilde in the title of this paper, I'm self-consciously trying to look at William Wilde from the perspective used by Robin Douglas Fairhurst in his 2011 book, Becoming Charles Dickens, The Invention of a Novelist. Douglas Fairhurst sets out to understand how Dickens became the master narrator and cultural icon of Victorian Britain. His approach to doing this is to focus on the mid-1830s, a particular moment which he sees as the crucially formative um, point uh, uh, in Dickens' self-fashioning as a writer. 
Now, following Douglas Fairhurst, I'm also going to focus on a particular period in Wilde's career as a medical man and savant. This is the late 1830s and the early 1840s primarily. I mean, Pache, Douglas Fairhurst, and more recently, Edmund Gordon in his The Invention of Angela Carter, a biography. Uh, however, this is not intended to be life-writing as invention narrative, let alone as evolutionary process. The years on which I'm focusing are those in which Wilde became the medical man, savant and man of letters, later so fulsomely honoured. These are the years in which Wilde's biographers from T.G. Wilson's 1942 Victorian Doctor onwards have seen the particular components of his subsequent career trajectory coming together and setting him on course to that 1864 knighthood and the other honours of his later years. If we juxtapose the young man of 28 on the image there, you see also the, the, the clean-shaven image, the one that's also used in the, in the poster for this paper. If you, if, you, if you look at that, if you juxtapose the young man of 28 imbued with the spirit of the scientific romanticism associated with Alexander von Humboldt, um, it was painted by Bernard Mulraney in, in 1843. If you compare that with the, um, well, the two patriarchal eminences there, uh, Particular, I mean, the one, the large image there, that really gives you a sense of the sheer, you know, that's William White at the height, Wilde at the height of his success, the height of his power, and he kind of exudes authority and position and, and so on. Um, the, uh, the photograph where he's wearing that uniform there, um, that's, um, it's 1873, um, as you can see, I think that's on the occasion he received the Cunningham Prize. He was in the building of the, the then building of the Royal Irish Academy. So he's uh, a, the, what you get when you see that photograph is a patriarchal eminence, bearded, suited, booted, and sword bearing, as befitted a chevalier of the Order of the Northern Star. This is the day he received the Cunningham Prize, a prestigious honour from his native Ireland. Uh, when we look, at, we compare that with the the, the Mulraney image. Um, we see the um, the contrast not just of age but also of self-presentation. I would suggest, however, that the actualities of the achievements of the fifty-eight-year-old Wild—that's the one in the, um, the, the 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 unit, the Chevalier uniform—presumably intended to signify were all essentially in place by the time Mulraney displayed his portrait at the Royal Hibernian Academy's annual exhibition in eighteen forty-six. Uh, that um, um, the um, wild um, one is now in um, is it the Harry Ransom? Um, I think it's on the. Um, did you say on the poster actually where one of the the, the the Thomas Wilde is in the Harry Ransom Humanities sorry yeah this one the the Mulraney is in the Harry Ransom Humanities Research Center at the University of Texas in Austin um, the Thomas Wilde which is on the photocopy which was distributed that's um, that's a, a color miniature on ivory and that's to be found in the William Andrews Clark <coughs> Memorial Library at the University of California Los Angeles which is that um, a huge well primarily Oscar Wilde collection there. Um, there's some William Wilde stuff and other Wilde stuff, but it's mostly Oscar Wilde and to a lesser extent Speranza's correspondence that are uh, are archived there. But anyway, that's where the Thomas Wilde portrait is. Um, so I mean, in other words, they're not round places you can you can, you can go and see them easily in, in this neck of the woods. Um, I'm going to look at this process of becoming Sir William Wilde from four different perspectives. The first of these is his family background. 
My second and third perspectives adopt methodologies developed um, by uh, um, a historian of science for the concept of a network of enterprises. Uh, that's the second perspective. And then the third one is, uh, is developed by a sociologist of medicine and science, and, that, and I'm using that for the concept of centres of calculation. Now, I use these two perspectives to draw out the historical conditions that made possible such a career. This was a career that went on to span such disparate worlds as those inhabited by Wilde, the Victorian medical man, and Dublin savant, the historian of Irish medical traditions, the biographer of Irish medical men, the Wilde of the census, and of the West of Ireland and its traditions. My fourth perspective, which I'll come to briefly uh, at the, uh, towards the end of this paper, the final bit of this paper, um, is to consider the late 1830s and early 1840s, the crucial stage of Wilde's self-fashioning as both a highly successful clinician within an emergent area of medical expertise and as a man of science. See that and also his, you know, the, the uh, elite cohort um, in which he, he became part of during those years, uh, the elite medical cohort in, in Dublin. Um, I'm going to tr um, attempt to look at that in relation to a wider historiographical debate. And this is the debate about the professionalisation of medicine, the, you know, the question to which yeah, uh, medicine did become professionalised during the early to mid-19th century. And then, secondly, the extent to which clinical practice, you know, the clinic that we're going to be Foucauldian, became scientific before the advent of laboratory medicine later in the 19th century. So, um, having indicated the intended direction of travel, um, I'm now going to uh, start with Sir William Wilde's family background. Now, this was a family background that laid the foundations for the network of enterprises he acquired during and after his medical training. And the first thing that needs to be stressed about his family background is that Wilde's were not Georgian blow-ins from England, from Durham, uh, to Roscommon, as has often been argued. Nor were they descended from a Colonel de Vilder in the Williamite army, as Oscar Wilde apparently believed. Um, Davis Coakley, supplementing the genealogical research of uh, Brianna Brefney um, with detailed archival work of his own, Davis Coakley has found legal documentation linking William Wilde's grandfather, Ralph, and there are going to be quite a few Ralphs in this next bit of the story. This is the first of them, is William Wilde's grandfather. Uh, that Ralph Wilde is the first of the Roscommon Wildes. Um, and the legal documentation that Davis Coakley has uh, found uh, links him to two merchant builders, sorry, merchant builders, as Coakley calls them, the brothers John and William Wilde, we might call them property developers. Um, they'd acquired substantial property assets in early 18th century Dublin and its rural hinterland. Coakley spe speculates that the foundation of this mercantile wealth may have been a grant in Charles II's uh, 1662 restoration settlement. Uh, the grant involved the gift of houses in Thomas Street, then the uh, commercial hub of Dublin, to uh, an earlier, and there's a, another, William Wilde. Um, and this uh, grant was uh, awarded for service in the Royalist Army raised by Charles I in 1641 from Old English families of the Pale. And the fact that the army, all the officers in this army were from Old English families is significant in, in what immediately follows. Um, Ralph Wilde, probably the natural son of the builder John Wilde, 
we do not know exactly when he first went to Roscommon. What is known is that by 1746, he was notable enough in that part of the world to be asked to witness a deed for Lord Mount Sanford, the owner of the landed estate outside Castle Ree. Described variously as, and I uh, quote, a dealer, land agent, farmer, and gentleman, unquote, in documents seen by Davis Coakley, it seems reasonable to assume that some of John and William Wilde's, this is the later William, this is the, the 18th century William Wilde, not the Royalist Army officer, uh, John and William Wilde's Dublin Whelpers used to help Ralph Wilde create a new life for himself in Roscommon after the death of his natural father in Dublin. Now, Ralph Wilde's position in Roscommon would have been further enhanced by his marriage to a daughter of the O'Flynn of Ballinloch, Roscommon. Um, the O'Flynn was the head of a family traditionally allied to the former O'Connor kings of Connacht. Davis Coakley gives um, an intriguing glimpse of Ralph Wilde's perception of himself in relation to his wife. This is from a letter of 1914 in which a local historian uh, in Roscommon refers to having seen the inscription um, R, as in Ralph, the initial R, Wilde, July 16th, 1758, Old English, um, inscribed um, on the window of what was the, uh, the former Wilde home in Castle Ree. Now, this inscription as well as providing further evidence of the old English descent of the Wilde family, this inscription also suggests a Ralph Wilde who felt himself to be an ancestral relation to the post-Tudor elective affinity between the old English and the Gaelic Irish, into one of whose families he was now married. His son Thomas, um, again Sir Thomas on the, on the image there, physician and father to Sir William Wilde, also married into an important old Gaelic-Irish family of the West. His wife was Amelia, the daughter of John Finn, that's Finn as in F-Y-N-N, owner of a Mayo estate of 2,000 acres at Ballymagibbon near Cong. Now the Finns had become evangelical Protestants, John Finn, um, that's the, the, the uh, Amelia's father was said to have been a notorious dipper. Dipper's still awake there, historian. But the, something to do with dipping in water. Um, I think there were Methodists as opposed to Baptists or some branch of, of, of Methodism. Uh, the Finns were also related to other distinguished gentry and professional families of Connacht. The Surridges, the Wills. Remember um, the, um, the William Wilde is uh, William Robert Wills Wilde, and it's also Wills is also one of the names that um, he and Speranza give to Oscar Wilde. They're not um, so yeah. Wills obviously did mean something. I mean, there's James Wills, the important another important antiquarian, um, also associated like Sir William Wilde with Dublin University Magazine. It's also from Roscommon. Um, so that yeah, there's. Um, so the, yeah, there's uh, there is there's a uh, relationship, a uh, family relationship there, however uh, distantly. And the other family, um, other one of these gentry or professional families of Connacht was the Oosleys. Now, members of the Oosley family included soldiers and diplomats of distinction, as well as Gideon Oosley, um, the fluent native speaker and itinerant Methodist preacher known as the John Wesley of Ireland. So. Sir William Wilde's father, Thomas, should not be seen as a backwards Protestant physician living in an isolated situation far from Dublin in Roscommon. He was a son of a man who had come to Castlereagh with links to commercial Dublin, he'd prospered in the West and he'd married well. Through his O'Flynn mother, his Finn wife 
and the patients he encountered through what must have been an extremely extensive practice. Um, Ireland during the long 18th century uh, was what the Annals School would call under-medicalised, seriously under-medicalised. There were very few uh, medics around, uh, very few physicians and, and, and surgeons around. Um, Thomas Wilde presumably, uh, through all of this, Thomas Wilde presumably acquired a firm sense of affiliation to Gaelic Connacht, um, which he, in, he would in turn have passed on to his children. This helps to explain why our William Wilde, Sir William Wilde, always felt so comfortable in his skin in the West. Accompanying his father on his rounds in a Roscommon countryside with only one decent road linking the north and south of the county, spending summers around Kong on the Galway-Mayo border with the Finn relatives, um, and boarding at the diocesan school in El Finn. Um, all of this introduced the young William Wilde to the pre-famine Connacht peasantry and their traditions. It also laid the ground for the lifelong sense of affinity with the West that imbues his later writings on its history, its folk traditions, including its medical traditions and its landscapes. William Wilde's youthful immersion in the traditional culture of the Gaelic West was similar to that experienced by Douglas Hyde in the same area in and around Roscommon in the 1860s and 70s, as also was the experience of being brought up in a family in that area, in that particular area, with extremely close links to the Church of Ireland. Thomas Wilde's elder brother, and therefore um, our William's uncle, who's another Ralph, won the Barclay Gold Medal in Greek at Trinity uh, as um, uh, our William's son Oscar Wilde was also to do much much later in the nineteenth uh, in the middle of the nineteenth century in the eighteen seventies rather, um, and uh, this Ralph Wilde became part of a scholarly Church of Ireland Trinity cohort um, who clustered around the prolific theologian um, Dean of Arda and Regis Professor of Greek at Trinity Richard Graves whose dates are 1763 to 1829. He's apparently buried in the old churchyard at Donnybrook, according to his DMB entry. Um, uh, William Wilde eulogised, our William Wilde, eulogised Richard Graves in his Life and Writings of Dean Graves, and anonymously published, as all the articles were in that uh, uh, journal in an, uh, in an 1841 Dublin University magazine article in which Ralph Wilde, um, that's William Wilde's uncle, is mentioned as a member of this Graves cohort at, and I quote from William Wilde, our university, unquote. Richard Graves is also the father of Robert James Graves, the leading Dublin physician who took the student William Wilde under his wing and became a key component of Wilde's network of enterprises. William Wilde's two elder brothers, John and Ralph, that's the third and last Ralph I think we're going to encounter today, okay, were also Trinity graduates who took Church of Ireland orders and at different times held the same incumbency at Holy Trinity Church Castle Ree with its comfortable rectory at the hill, as did um, Douglas Hyde's grandfather. I think it's where actually meant to be where Douglas Hyde was born because his father had a much less kind of commodious rectory somewhere in Sligo. So the um, um, Hyde's mother to, uh, went 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 over to, to the hill in Castle Ree was, was a, was a um, better place to be. So when, as a medical student, William Wilde encountered Robert Graves as one of his teachers at the private school of anatomy, medicine, and surgery at Park Street. That's now Lincoln Place in Dublin. 
Um, Greys would presumably have known Wilde already, or certainly have been familiar with the Wilde family through William's uncle Ralph. And although Thomas Wilde, that's that image again on the photocopy, spent 30 years as a medical practitioner serving the people of the parish of Holy Church, Castle Ree, as his 1838 gravestone there describes him uh, at the time of his death at the age of 78, he, Thomas Wilde, was certainly not without contacts in medical Dublin. He was able to have William apprenticed in 1832 to Abraham Colles, C-O-L-L-E-S, the leading surgeon of the day. A little is known about the details of Thomas Wilde's medical career beyond the anecdotes listed in T.G. Wilson's um, 1842 biography um, of, of William Wilde, Victorian doctor. Um, little is known beyond those anecdotes and, more specifically, the details of his taking an 1809 MD from the University of St Andrews. These have been researched by Peter Froggart. Um, the testimonials cited by Froggart that Thomas Wilde was able to present to St Andrews in support of his receiving the degree, and I quote, this is a, uh, a quotation from Peter Froggart, which con contains in turn a quotation from one of the letters, uh, the testimonials that Thomas Wilde presented to St Andrews. So starting off quoting uh, Peter Froggart, um, he'd attended and completed a, a course of lectures on the general branches of medicine in Trinity College, Dublin, has received a liberal education with a capital L and capital E, and is a respectable character, capital R, capital C, and from personal knowledge, we judge him worthy of the honour of a degree in medicine. And that at the time was actually, uh, that was the usual way in which he got a medical degree. And loads of Irish doctors um, right into the early 19th century go to Scottish universities to get the degrees. I mean, some for a primarily re religious reason, uh, both Catholics and uh, Presbyterians, because of the... Um, Anglican subscription required at, at, at Trinity, but it, 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 yeah, but um, uh, other other Irish doctors also uh, went to uh, got the degrees from uh, from Scotland. Um, so these testimonials point to Thomas Wilde having some clout in medical Dublin. One of his sponsors, James Cleghorn, was a former president of the King and Queen's College of Physicians. If Thomas was not unknown in medical Dublin, he would presumably uh, he would presumably been able to prepare William for what to expect after he'd taken the coach up to Dr. Stevens's hospital in 1832 after initially encountering surgery through his father's Roscommon practice. Okay, now turning now to the network of enterprises and the centre of calculation that I use in my title, and to which I referred excuse me, in the introduction to this paper, as a second and third perspectives from which I'm looking at how this process of becoming Sir William Wilde got underway, we're going to look at the historical conditions that made possible the career spanning such, di such disparate worlds that started to take shape during the years I'm focusing on today. Now, I'm using these two terms as ways of seeing, if I can also adopt the title of John Burgess' seminal work on aesthetic theory and art history, ways of seeing how um, Wilde's various, the various involvements that became the defining characteristics of Wilde as a Dublin medical man and savant came about. Now, for the first of these ways of seeing, I'm going to draw on a 1982 article in the journal ISIS. That's the official journal of the American Academy for the History of Science, by the way. Um, the, American, the journal ISIS by the Cambridge historian of science, Martin Rudwick. 
This article is entitled Charles Darwin in London, the Integration of Public and Private Science. I will be taking from it the concept of a network of enterprises. For the second, I'll be utilising the French social theorist Bruno Latour um, and the centres of calculation that he describes in his 1987 book, Science in Action, How to Follow Scientists and en Engineers Through Society. The network of enterprises that William Wilde began to acquire as a student in medical Dublin had its origins in his mentorship by two of his teachers, Robert Graves and Sir Henry Marsh. This mentorship was in itself facilitated by the system of medical education then in place in Dublin, where students were attached to a particular hospital, but also needed to attend classes at one of the city's private schools in order to complement what they were learning in the hospital when they were walking the wards. Marsh was the physician to Dr. Stevens's hospital and would have met Wilde there as an, um, uh, Wilde was an apprentice of Abraham Collis, surgeon to the same hospital. Through being taught by Robert Graves at Park Street, where Graves, Graves himself was physician to the Meath Hospital, Wilde became a close friend with both Graves and William Stokes, who with Graves was the other preeminent physician of the Dublin medical elite at that time. Wilde completed his medical training with a year's midwifery at the Rotunda under Ivory Kennedy, where he won the annual prize for an essay on spina bifida. Following the subsequent award of his letters testimonial from the, Royal, from the College of Surgeons, that's what you got at the end of your apprenticeship as a surgeon then, um, it was through the patronage of, you know, Wilde never actually took a medical degree, in other words, that's um, he, he stayed with. Um, following the subsequent award of his letters testimonial, it was through the patronage of Graves and Marsh that Wilde went on to acquire a network of enterprises comparable to that which Martin Rudwick has shown the young Charles Darwin acquiring whilst living in London after his return from the Voyage of the Beagle. After, uh, after Darwin graduated from Cambridge, his mentor, the botanist J.B. Henslow, arranged for a Darwin who was anxious to defer taking the Anglican orders his father had intended him for after he, that's Charles, had hastily abandoned medical school in Dublin. He was very squeamish about the sight of blood, apparently, um, and leapt to the chance of being appointed resident naturalist to HMS Beagle. This was the, the job that... Um, Henslow had fixed him up with. Uh, the writing up and publishing in 1839 of the observations and researches Darwin had gathered during the ship's extended voyage of scientific exploration between 1832 and 1836 established Darwin's credentials as a savant in the institutions of the British scientific establishment. It also laid the foundations for the wide-ranging but interlocking research trajectories uh, this is what Rudwick calls the network of enterprises, through which his work on Darwin's work on species was later put together. Likewise, Wilde's Dublin mentors, Graves and Marsh, ensured that the completion of his medical apprenticeship in 1837 was followed by a period of voyaging. In Wilde's case, this was between September 1837 and June 1838. Now, like Henslow with Darwin, Graves and Marsh realised that a period of immediate absence overseas was desirable for their former student. In the case of Wilde, however, Wilde uh, wasn't trying to escape from uh, becoming a clergyman as, as Darwin was. It's, in the case of Wilde, it's unclear whether the reasons for this 
were primarily therapeutic, he was recovering from typhus at the time, or um, personal. Um, there's another story that, that he'd, he'd fathered a child in, in, in Dublin and felt it was advisable to get out of town quickly. Um, or, um, this is Peter Frog at uh, Charitably speculates that Graves and Marsh wanted to save Wilde from, and I'm quoting Frog, falling into the obscurity of country practice back in Roscommon. Um, Whatever its spur, this voyaging laid the foundation for Wilde's own network of enterprises as a Dublin savant, just as HMS Beagle did for Darwin at around the same time. Writing up his, this is Wilde's researches and observations, whilst travelling on the steam yacht Crusader as medical attendant to a wealthy invalid, led after Wilde's return to Dublin to the 1839 publication of his first book, Narrative of a Voyage to Madeira, Tenerife, and along the shores of the Mediterranean. Wilde wrote the book, as Peter Froggatt observes, in the same situation as another young doctor later in the, uh, in the 19th century, Arthur Conan Doyle, was to do, uh, writing um, in his consulting room whilst waiting for patients to turn up for a newly established medical practice. In Wilde's case, not, uh, not in Port, uh, Conan Doyle's case, it was Portsmouth. In Wilde's case, it was number 199, Great Brunswick Street, now Pierce Street. Um, Wilde's book became uh, an instant bestseller and with the articles and public presentations linked with the voyage resulted in, in his becoming a member of the Royal Irish Academy in June 1839, exactly a year after his return to Dublin. Becoming known as Wilde's Voyage, just as the lengthy full title of Darwin's 1839 um, this is a very long title, Journal of Researches into the Geology and Natural History of Those Countries Visited by HMS Beagle under the command of Captain Fitzroy, RN, as in Royal Navy, from 1832 to 1836, became popularly abbreviated to The Voyage of the Beagle. Wild's Voyage, with a two-volume account of the natural history and topography, climate and medical provision he'd encountered in the places visited by the Crusader. Um, it also included extensive reflections by him on contemporary debates about the Levantine origins of the Celt. These reflections were prompted by his visits to the extensive ruins of the ancient civilizations of the eastern Mediterranean, notably the city of Tyre, now in, in, in Lebanon. The Crusader had functioned for Wilde as the Beagle had for Darwin. This was as the research base for a voyage of scientific explanation. And this is what Bruno Latour in Science in Action has called a centre of calculation. It's a centre from which scientific and geographical information could be disseminated to imperial centres from wherever the ship happened to be. A wild ship, the Crusader, was a privately owned vessel. It was not a ship of the Royal Navy like the Beagle. Furthermore, Wilde was privately employed as a medical attendant to a private individual, not to a captain of the Royal Navy, as was Darwin. Nonetheless, the Crusader's voyage, like that of the Beagle, was through seas controlled in this post-Napoleonic era by the Royal Navy, its provisioning and postal communications likewise relying on outposts of British imperial power. The book which came out of this voyage displayed Wilde's fieldwork as that of an articulate naturalist in exotic regions. It also represented a contribution to the burning genre, sorry, burgeoning genre of medical geography and medical travel writing, a genre 
which catered for the desires of wealthy Victorians for healthy convalescent locations with the added bonus of surroundings of scholarly interest. The Scottish physician Sir James Clark, his dates are 1760 to 1869, was the pioneer of medical geography as a form of travel writing within the British Isles. Um, early in his career, I mean, Clark later became the main physician due to Queen Victoria. Uh, early in his career, Clark, like Wilde was to do later on the Crusader, Clark had accompanied an invalid to the south of France, to Switzerland and to Florence. The influence of Clark's subsequent publications... Medical, uh, the first of these is uh, called Medical Notes on Climate, Diseases, Hospitals and Medical Schools in the South of France, Italy and Switzerland, published in 1820. And the other one is called The Influence of Climate on the Prevention and Cure of Chronic Disease, that's published in 1829. Uh, the influence of these can uh, be seen in both Wilde's Voyage um, and also in his second book, um, Austria, uh, which was published in 1843. A Wilde was indeed to meet uh, Sir James Clark in person during his stint, during Wilde's stint in London in 1839 at the Royal London Ophthalmic Hospital. That's what's Moorfields Hospital today. Um, this is at the start of Wilde's of the medical travels between 1839 and 1841, which the successful publication of the voyage made possible for Wilde from the royalties that he, he got from the book's sales. Furthermore, the voyage could also be read as a contribution to the musings both ethnological and anti antiquarian of Irish and British Celticists, and as a marker to the wider imperial readership for whom it would have... Uh, I'm sorry, and a marker as to the wider imperial readership for whom um, it would have been intended... Um, is Wilde's frequent designation of himself in the book as English. In a specific, specifically Irish context, however, Wilde's voyage provided its author with a gateway into the scientific, intellectual and political elite of Dublin. It did this by bringing him to the attention of the savant institutions of the city, the Royal Irish Academy, the Royal Dublin Society, the two royal colleges, at Trinity College. They did this in a way comparable to what the Beagle voyage and resultant researches were doing for Darwin's position within London science at the same time. It also resulted in Wilde's becoming a regular contributor to and later a member of the editorial coterie around the Dublin University magazine. In a British context, meanwhile, the book introduced him to those gentlemen of science whose world has been so carefully reconstructed through J.B. Morell and Arnold Thackeray's classic study of the early years of the British Association for the Advancement of Science, what's called Gentlemen of Science, um, the early years after its foundation in 1832. Wilde's attendance at the British Association's meeting in Birmingham in 1839, British Association, uh, which still, uh, is still, is still, still exists and, and still continues to have this practice, meets annually in a different location. Um, I mean, first meeting, I think, was in Oxford, a second in Cambridge, a third in York, then it did Edinburgh, then it did Dublin. I think that, that's the sequence. By 1839, uh, it was decided to doff its hat to, to uh, industrial centres and went, went, to, went to Birmingham. Um, and he wild was in England at the time, it's the period when he's in London, so he goes to the Birmingham meeting and his attendance at the meeting inaugurated a long-standing relationship with the British Association. One of the highlights of this relationship was to come in 1857, 
when they had um, their meet, uh, another meeting in Dublin. Uh, one of the highlights of this meeting was Wilde escorting certain members of the association to the Aran Islands. The governing circles in Dublin Castle also overlapped with Savant Dublin during this period, most especially in the person of Thomas Larkham. And the voyage also resulted, resulted in Wilde coming to Larkham's attention. This develops into a very important relationship. With a military background of the Royal Engineers, Larkham is the initiator and overseer of the Irish Ordnance Server between the late 1820s and the late 1840s. He was also commissioner um, of the Irish census, and because of Larkham, the census shared many of the Ordnance Survey's resources and personnel, um, particularly its Irish language scholars. Um, uh, Larkham was responsible for the appointment of Wilde's medical advisor to the 1841 Irish census and later as assistant commissioner to the 1851, 1861 and 1871 censuses. Larkham uh, was one of the most important figures in the castle from the 1840s to the 1860s, his Irish undersecretary from 1853 to 1868. They became close friends with Wilde. They shared the same liberal ideology of amelioration, which is indeed the characteristic ideology of savant Dublin. And Peter Gray has described this ideology um, of, as pervading both the Dublin Statistical Society, um, later the Statistical and Social Inquiry Society of Ireland. Um, Larkham and Wilde were both founder members of the Dublin Statistical Society in 1847. Um, and also that liberal ideology, Gray um, argues also sets very much sets the tone both uh, in terms of narrative and in structure of Wilde's 1851 census report. That's his great census report, the one he's best known for. A further Wilde-Darwin parallel can be drawn uh, with regard to where they lived on returning from their respective voyages. I mean, locations of science and medicine are quite interesting in this period because you know, it's much looser than it was to become later in, uh, in the 19th uh, century. Wilde initially practised, as, as, as we've seen at 199 Great Brunswick Street, and then in numbers 15 and later 21 Westland Row. 21 Westland Row is the, where Trinity currently have the Irish Writers' Centre. Um, Shortly after his marriage to uh, Jane Francesca Elgie Speranza in 1851 and the births of their first two children, Willie in 1852 and Oscar in 1854, uh, Wilde, William Wilde moved to the more spacious and prestigious address of number one Merrion Square. Before Darwin, in turn, adopted the life of a married country gentleman in Kent at Down House, he lived on his return from the Beagle Voyage, in a Gower Street townhouse in Bloomsbury, where the building that now houses the anatomy and physiology departments of uh, University College London are, are, are located just, just up the road from where there's a the large um, water stones. Um, well, they'll be the main water stones for uh, the University of London. Uh, yet another Darwin parallel is the exploration of the Levant was as crucial for Wilde's subsequent medical trajectory as travel to South America and the Galapagos Islands were for that of Darwin within the wider biomedical sciences. In Egypt, Wilde was able to observe at first hand the specialist facilities established by the modernising Pasha, Mohammed Ali, for the treatment of the infectious ophthalmic trachoma, which was endemic in Egypt, 
uh, that had been brought to Western Europe, including Ireland, as a consequence of Napoleon's invasion of Egypt. This experience of, of the um, medical facilities that Muhammad Ali had uh, established in Cairo, uh, with, the, with the assistance of Prussian doctors, in fact, uh, this experience gave Wilde what became a lifelong interest in diseases of the eye, while the income generated by the voyage facilitated the development of that interest in London, at Moorfields, and at the Hunterian Museum of the Royal College of Surgeons. That income also helped lay the roots of his other medical specialism by permitting further travel to the Allegheny's Krankenhaus General Hospital and the Josephs Academy in Vienna, and then to Munich, Heidelberg, Prague, and Berlin. During this medical grand tour, he encountered at first hand the beginnings of the systematic study and practice of specialised medicine. The Viennese medical faculty had endowed a chair in ophthalmology in 1812, and Wilde attended the classes and observed the clinical practice of Anton Rosas, the second holder of that ophthalmology chair, and he also attended a course of practical surgery at the Allgemeines Krankenhaus. At the Josephs Academy, where surgeons were trained for the Habsburg Imperial Army, he similarly followed the professor of ophthalmology there, Friedrich Jaeger. Vienna also gave him access to the great nosologist of chest diseases, Josef Skoda, and the pathological anatomist, Karl Rokitansky. While attended Heidelberg as an independent student for a number of months, while in Berlin, he attended the clinic of the founder of plastic surgery, Johann Friedrich Diefenbach. Vienna also gave him the opportunity to research a second book, the 1843 Austria, its literary, scientific and medical institutions, in which he enhanced, uh, in which, sorry, in which the skills in the burgeoning field of public health and demography, which had earlier resulted in his appointment by Larkham to the 1841 census, they were further enhanced and fine-tuned. In Berlin, after um, his other middle European visits, um, the ethnological, ethnological interests that Wilde had acquired during uh, his voyage were stimulated by introductions to his hero, Alexander von Humboldt, who he had also briefly met in Portugal, I think, during the voyage of the Crusader, and also uh, Mariah Edgeworth, who he also knew from London, um, uh, introduced him to the Berlin Anthropological Society. And all of this further enhanced his reputation as savant Dublin when he returned to resume setting up a, med uh, a medical practice. Mariah Edgeworth had earlier introduced Wilde to literary London during his Moorfields period um, and Wilde's circle, social circle in London also included Sarah Lee, author and illustrator of the 1833 memoirs of Baron Cuvier, uh, also to Wilde's fellow Dubliner, the surgeon Robert Bentley Todd, um, who later founded King's College Hospital. He's also the brother of, of the R.H. Tard, who was a huge figure at the, in the Royal Irish Academy at the time, and also at, at Trinity, and one of the kind of pioneers of, 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 of the studies of the Irish language at Trinity. Um, anyway, Robert, sorry, Robert Bentley Tard is, is the one in London, okay? Uh, and also, Wilde got to know the Hunterian Professor of Comparative Anatomy at the Royal College of Surgeons, Richard Owen. That's the man who invented the term dinosaur and um, ultimately, uh, eventually became the war-to-the-death foe of the scientific naturalism associated with Darwin and T.H. Huxley. Um, the network of enterprises that Wilde had acquired thus provided him with the stage in which he could combine the role of 
roles of clinician, savant, polymath and public intellectual. But although the area of medical practice in which he achieved such prominence was highly specialised compared to those of his mentors, the surgeon Abraham Collars, the physicians Graves and Stokes, the extent of his public and scholarly hinterland was remarkable even by the standards of his day. That hinterland came to encompass the Irish census, the Ordnance Survey and the statistical and public health movements on the one hand, excuse me, the periodical journalism of the Dublin University magazine, together with the naturalists, ethnologists, antiquarians and archaeologists of the Royal Irish Academy on the other. Described by Michael Ryan as the, as the most important Irish field archaeologist of his day, he also compiled the Academy's Catalogue of Antiquities, which is the first of its kind in Europe. Now, I'm not very good at diagrams, uh, but I could think of various diagrams that... Um, uh, could perhaps be adapted for a visual representation for Wilde's network of enterprises. I mean, Rudwick in his article on, um, on Darwin uses a, a Venn diagram to represent how what he calls Darwin's public and his private science uh, during his period of uh, residence in London, um, how they, after he came back from the Beagle voyage, the overlapping Venn circles represent the relation between the science was the public science, which Darwin was outlined through publications and talks, and the private science he was writing up in the notebooks. This is a work on species that he kept from uh, largely kept from public dissemination. He only showed them to certain highly trusted people. Um, another way of doing this for Wilde and his Dublin would be to ad adopt something like the diagram that, uh, of the Paris of Flaubert's sentimental education, uh, which Pierre Bourdieu. Um, has in his essay outline of a theory of method. Sorry, I haven't done those diagrams for this. Here's some suggestions how such a diagram could go. Okay, now to conclude with, uh, very quickly now with my fourth perspective. I want to consider Wilde and the medical cohort to which he belonged in relation to medical professionalisation and the degree to which medicine became scientific in the early to mid-19th century. Now, the Graves, Stokes, Wilde cohort are axis within Dublin medicine, uh, like those of their clinical peers in Edinburgh and London, um, they're medical modernisers, and they're thought medical reformers, all of them, with international reputations. And they also share, and this is where this whole question of professionalisation, or the degree of it, comes, uh, comes into play, they shared with their clinical peers on the other <coughs> island a commitment to a gentlemanly rather than professional model for the practice of elite medicine. They regarded themselves, and these are the terms that they used, medical men, men of science, and in many cases, men of letters, rather than professional clinicians and scientists. What we're talking about here is what you might call medical gentility. Um, if you want to read more about it, there's a, um, a, a 1985 article in the Journal of Contemporary History by Christopher Lawrence called Incommunicable Knowledge, Science, Technology and the Clinical Art in Britain, 1850 to 1914. There's also uh, Paul White's 2002 book, Cambridge University Press book, Thomas Huxley, Making the Man of Science. Even Huxley, who we tend to see as the great professionalizer of Victorian science, saw himself use the term man of science about himself. Um, 
They used the term scientist as well, but it didn't mean professional scientist in the way that what that term came to mean during the, uh, with big science in the in the in the in the twentieth century. Um, I also talk uh, a bit about that in relation to into George Sigus in in my article in in the in in the book which um, Catherine and Maria bloody co uh, co cultures of care and Irish medical history. Um, <clears throat> okay, final paragraph. Um, Indeed, most historians of 19th century medicine and science now question the extent to which there was a decisive shift towards professionalization during the 19th century. They also question the extent to which the medicine practiced during that period was scientific in the way that we understand that term today. What does, I mean, the term, uh, I mean, science, as, as you probably know, as a, a general term for all forms of knowledge of the systematic study, uh, study and acquisition of knowledge have been around for centuries. The actual, the word scientist was first used, actually at a meeting of the British Association, I think its first one, in Cambridge in 1832 by William Hewell, the uh, mathematician and um, uh, president of, uh, of oh, sorry, uh, master of, of Trinity College, Cambridge, very important figure in, um, uh, in, in British science at that time. And actually, in some ways, the cohort around Hewell um, are not unlike the cohort around Wilde. I mean, um, they're both attached to, I mean, your, your Wilde's cohort are centred uh, uh, around Trinity, which is a, um, a collegiate college on the Oxford and Cambridge model. It's an Anglican foundation, like um, all the Cambridge colleges uh, were at that time. Um, and um, they, um, both cohorts would have seen themselves under threat from you know, emergent political forces in their respective societies. Um, slightly different in the case of um, Hewell or indeed the London medical elite where they were, felt themselves threatened by um, Lamarckian evolutionists and London medical radicals kind of people. Adrian Desmond writes uh, about his book in um, the, Anatomy, the Anatomy of Evolution. Um, you know, radical medical London, private medical schools in London, which were much more politically radical than their equivalents in Dublin during this period, particularly they were tend to be followers of, of Lamarck and the Anglican scientific establishment. It was absolutely death on them. Um, but they were seen as very much seen as a political threat in relation to emergent democratic political forces. Now, of course, what threatened an Anglican elite in Ireland at this time also had a specifically Irish dimension, which there isn't really time to enlarge in, in, in on here, although I have done that elsewhere. Um, what does seem to be clear, though, um, just going back more generally speaking now, is that the and the question of, of medicine, uh, did it become scientific in our sense during this period, what does seem clear is that the representation of the medicine practised by these groups as being a science-based activity. And they're all very keen to insist on that. We follow scientific rules, okay? And, um, I mean, there is some historians, notably W.F. Bynum, um, Bynum uh, Bill Bynum published a very important book in the 1980s called Science and the Practice of Medicine in the 19th Century. Now, since then, you know, the historiographical wheel has been turning as it tends to do. And the, 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 the line more recently is that... Um, it's the representation people represent you know, medics are representing their, their clinical practice as being science based um, and that was they saw that 
because they saw that as central to their self-presentation of themselves as being men of science as well as, well as medical man. It was recognised, you know, to be an important medical man, you also had to be a, a recognised man of science, you have sign, recognised scientific skills, as well as, your, as, well as, your, as well as your specifically medical ones. In other words, what these early Victorians called scientific is not necessarily what we would call scientific. And, and this is my closing sentence, frock coats and malacca-tipped canes rather than white coats remained the norm in Merrion Square as in Harley Street during this period. Laboratory-based medicine was still largely in the future during William Wilde's lifetime. Thank you.